E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Louis Benoit Davinia, the co-owner of Davinia in the Beaujolais region of France. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine. Very glad to be here. So actually, your father tended vines, and so have many of your family in the past, right? Yes. And making only bottles, like selling your own wine, you know, it's also something very, very new, finally. And my dad was one of the first to make that in the 60s. My granddaddy did some bottling of one of the best part of, of the property, which is Javernier. But it was just 2,000 bottles a year, not more. And so you're specifically in Morgon. Yeah. So if I were to think about Morgon in general as an appellation, how does it lay? Uh, Morgon, it's, it's a big, big appellation. It's uh, very easy when you go to Paris to find a brewery or a Morgon everywhere, for example. It's more difficult for some smaller crew of Beaujolais. And uh, that's the first thing. It's 1,100 hectares. It's a big appellation. But there are a lot of differences. You can find some Morgon very amazing for drinking very early with a lot of fruit, for having a lot of pleasure. But you can also find some Morgon foraging a lot and uh, very hard to say what it is in blind test after 5, 10 years and more, you know. It's also an appellation where you can find a lot of very good winemakers. Because... I think it was, since the beginning, the appellation where you can find the most important part of winemakers who sell his own production, which is something important after 50 years. It makes some differences. You can find a lot of good winemakers, and I have a lot of good examples. Daniel Boulan, Marcel Lapierre, Jean Foyard are very important. There are a lot of very good winemakers, and uh, it makes a good dynamic on the crew, on the appellation model. I think one of the more famous vineyards is the Côte de Puy in Morgon, right? Yeah. It's also, I think, one of the most famous in all the crew of Beaujolais. When you say Côte de Puy, I have a good example of a factory who put Côte de Puy bigger than Morgon on the label. It's famous because it's a very particular soil. It's very close to another crew, Côte de Puy, for the soil, mixing uh, with sand clay and a lot of schist, slate, bluestone. We used to speak about rotten rock. On the Côte du Pie, you can find a little bit the same things in the Côte de Bruy. Which was like decomposed schist, right? Exactly. And it gives 
wine, especially with the grape variety Gamay, with a lot of personality. Something very particular, especially for aging, but uh, not only for that. You know, since the first days of the vinification, you have some differences with the color, with a lot of, you know, it's very particular. It's a very particular soil. But it's a big part of the Cru Morgan. I don't really know exactly how many hectares are on the climate Cote du Pays, but I think it's something close to 300, something like that. There are a lot of differences in the Cote du Pays. For example, the lower part, the bottom of the Cote du Pays, in this part, it's Les Pierres or Javernières. It gives wines very different of what you have on the top of the hill. So you make a Cote du Pays and a Javernières. Yeah, actually, wait, we have those two bottling, yes. And the Javernières, as you just said, is at the bottom of the Cote du Pays. Sure. And I believe it's also got heavier clay, right? Yeah. The top, you have 50% of sand and 50% of clay with a lot of stone on the top. But when you go to Javernier, the proportion of clay is definitely more important. It's more than 60, 70%, sometimes more, if you go really down on the bottom. And it gives some interesting differences, especially for the warm vintage. But, you know, it's different kind of flavor. Most part of the time, the two first years Cote du Pays is something more impressive, like with big shoulders, something like big structure. Javernier is a little bit shyer, the two first years. It's something little bit more impressive. Even if you have the typical things of this part of the Appalachian, the mouth very long, something very straight and pure mineral, but very sweet in the same time, elegant and round. But it's not impressive at the Côte du Pays. Côte du Pays, it's like, I'm a big one, you know, I'm here. But, you know, after a few years, most part of the time, Javanias start to be better and better than the Côte du Pays. Even if it's too great wine for aging and for the best vintage to aging a lot. Even if a lot of people actually are not very ready for waiting a lot for drinking wine, it's very interesting, especially with the Gamay. And I speak about that because when I arrived at the first time to the vineyards to work with my sister and my dad, a lot of people used to think that's oh, Beaujolais, it's, oh, it's wine for drinking faster and you know, yes, I'm proud of that. Beaujolais is also wine for having a lot of pleasure. It's nice things, I think. But it's not just that. It's also, especially with Javernier or Côte du Pays, it's a good example for showing that it's possible to age a long time and having wine just, just gorgeous. When I think of producers that I would age longer, your wine, Claude Royette, maybe Michel Tet. Those come to mind for me as producers that I might lay in the cellar for longer as opposed to drinking immediately. Yeah. It's also the way of you imagine your wine. The way of you make your wine have a lot of influences for that. It's very easy, I think, also to, to think, yeah, it's Gamay and I can make wine for having a lot of pleasure easily and uh, faster. And yes, my dad, for example, but he's not the only one. It's a good example with uh, Le Claude Laroualette or Michel Zet also, with Sylvain now. Uh, can think, I would like to make a gamay like with big shoulders for aging a lot. Maybe if at the beginning it will be a little bit hostier or things like that. But I think for me, the best is to try to make wine drinkable in all his life. Having a lot of pleasure now and having pleasure in 10, 20, 25 years. 
Henri Jaillet used to say that great wine is wine you can drink every time. And I really agree with that. When you have a moment where the wine is with some more reduction, closed, austere, maybe it's a good wine, but it could be better. At the same time, you have multiple parcels and you do different bottlings and it seems like some of them are ready to go earlier. Sure, definitely. In the winery, we have, for example, La Voute Saint-Vincent. Uh, it's a mixing of several parcels on five hectares in the north part of the Appalachian, very close to Fleury on Chirouble. It's in the climate Duby, which is not very famous, but it's one of the best climates for making wine, for having a lot of pleasure faster. It's more simple. When I say simple, it's not uh, you know bad. It's more like with a lot of fruits, with some good acidity, like when you, you eat a peach, a good peach you want to take again you know it's not with a lot of sugar but just enough and some very good acidity and um, especially also because we don't work with with any barrels something like that for keeping this mineral and very tight things it's what we look for a little bit like white wine uh, i met a long time ago whole winemakers who told me that in Beaujolais it's possible to make the most white red wine in french you understand what i mean for me, it's an interesting part because we have to think that Gamay is mixing with Pinot Noir and Gouet. Gouet, it's a white grape variety, and it's a little bit in the uh, DNA of the Gamay. Having this kind of acidity, it was, I think, what the people hated during the 90s. Oh, you know, this kind of acidity. It's the same with Muscadet. It's one of my favorite things, actually. It's what I'm looking for in the, all the wine I taste. It's one of the most important things, I think. And we have that with the Gamay, and um, we can work with that. It's interesting, especially with wet wine, because it's possible to make Gamay for drinking with fish. With, uh, and it's interesting for the food. La Voute Saint-Vincent, it's a little bit uh, what we try to do. Not having traveled to the Beaujolais region very often and, and having more read about it, my assumption was that it was mostly a granite terroir. Mm -hmm. But then hearing you discuss the vineyards that you discussed already, granite didn't come up. So is there more or less granite in certain parts of Beaujolais? Yeah, sure. You have some cru with a lot of granite. I'm thinking about Chiroub, for example. Typical pink granites. We have that also uh, in part of Fleury and part of Morgon. I spoke about the climate Duby, for example, La Voute Saint-Vincent. It's a part with some granites. Uh, very sandy on the top, but it's very typical granitic soil. And it gives amazing wine with this freshness fillings. And uh, sometimes it's also amazing wines for aging. But there are a lot of different kinds of soil. It's not only granites. We told about Javernier or Côte du Pays. It's a good example about soil. War different about that. We have different kinds of soil and it's interesting. Do you see some of the technique coming out of the soil type? Like, do people tend to make a different kind of wine with different raw materials based on what they're sitting on? Your soil is a part of the wines, you know, and you have to help. You are a kind of tool for making the bridge between what we have in the soil and what you will have on your glass. I think maybe the best is to, to work with the soil. For example, Beaujolais, we have more than 30% of the vineyards with a steep hill. It means a lot of works, and it means like new winemakers or sometimes family try to plant vines a little bit differently. Yeah, that's what I remember. The place that I've been is Juliana, and I remember some really steep... Yeah, it's one of the most steep vineyards in France, actually. 
And uh, it's also one of the most expensive vineyards. Most part of the vineyards are very old vines, planted 10,000 vines an hectare. It means like walking an hectare in Beaujolais, it costs a lot, you know, for physically, but also for money, but also for a lot of things. It costs a lot. Now people start to replant, start to think again these vineyards. Even if people are, I think, historically very attached by the old way of making wine, because walking with the gobelet, it's a kind of poetry for me. It's one of the best way of pruning vines for having very well balanced of sap in your vines, but it's also very hard for all the mechanics after. So gobelet is kind of like a bush vine, and it's not on wires, and so that means that you have to head train. Hard things, it's because you have 10,000 vines and hectares, it's a lot of fruits, and the goblet, it's very large, you know, most part of the time. And uh, when you plowed, when you walk, you know, between every lines, you can destroy a lot of things. And uh, it's very long. Uh, if you walk in a bank, you know, uh, it's maybe if you, <laughs> you are with winemakers of Bajolet, sometimes you think, it's not a good idea to help this man, even, you know, understand? because it could cost a lot. But now it starts to change. People try new things, try new way of pruning the gamay, because also very important things, it's very low. Vines in Beaujolais are very low. Most part of the time, people who don't know Beaujolais, when they arrive in the vineyards, they think, but how is it possible? It's very low. So what's interesting to you these days in terms of pruning? For me, we try to keep the, the mind of the gobelet, but we try to walk the gobelet in one line making more easy walks with the plowing, but we try to not go higher. Gamay have some difficulties to, to grow up. Is that because of vigor? Also because it's old vineyards, but it's naturally not a grape variety with big, big vigor, because it's also a very poor soil. Interesting things to say about that, because Gamay was a very important variety historically in the Burgundy too. And uh, in 1395, Philippe Hardy, who was a king of France, decided to destroy all the gamay in Burgundy because for him it was a kind of very bad variety. Because in fact, it's true, when you have a very rich soil, it could give a lot of grapes, a lot of quantity, but sometimes not a good quality. It's sometimes interesting to see some vines of gamay because you can have, I don't know, 10 leaves, and 12 grapes. <laughs> you understand? It's like uh, not a lot of grape variety like that. But in the Beaujolais, north and south, it's very poor soil. It makes a lot of difficulties for the gamay, especially with 10,000 vines and hectares, to produce a lot. It produces less, but very, very interesting quality. It's a productive vine, but then often planted in a poor soil in this region. And yeah. that combination seems to equal each other out. But it's also the choice of the whole generation to plant it with a big density. 10,000 vines and hectares, you know, it, it's not the same to put 3,000 vines and hectares, you know, you produce more. And, but Gamay needs a special attention about that, I think. But actually, people try to plant it with less important density and have some interesting results also but they work differently to control the quantity. After since few years, we have some problems of quantity in Beaujolais in general. 
like other vineyards in France, and it's very sad, some problems with hail, with frost, with different kind of terrible nightmare of the winemaker. But in Beaujolais, we also have a lot of very old vines. It means two things. The first, it's amazing, maybe for thinking the future of the vineyards, because sometimes it's pure gold. We can speak about Selection Massal. For that, it could be very interesting. But in the same way, because we have a lot of very old vines, they start to produce less, less, and less. And, you know, start to be a problem, especially because in Beaujolais, people used to sell wine cheap, not expensive, which is uh, something uh, great, I think. People of the Beaujolais kept a very simple and humble relationship with wine. And uh, I hope they will keep that because it's in the DNA of the Beaujolais. It's important to make wines you can buy, you know. <laughs> but after, of course, we have that, very cheap wines. But it's important to have some more expensive wine, a kind of locomotive for a train. In terms of the planning density, what you seem to be implying is that if you're planning at a higher density with more vines per hectare, that there's competition for raw materials in the soil and nutrients. And as a result, you're getting less quantity per vine. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean that. And also because it's old vines, you know, more they start to be whole, more less they produce naturally, you know. And why do you think that there's a high percentage of old vines there? What kept them in the ground? It's expensive to plant again, you know. But also, I think it's a question of maybe culture. In France, we used to say that vines start to be interesting for making good and great wine after 30 years, at least. I think it's also a, a reason, important reason, why people didn't do nothing during a long time. So you returned to the estate in 2004, and your sister was already there, and your dad was still working at that time. And then you became a co-owner in 2009, and you and your sister decided to move to more of an organic approach, right? Yeah, sure. My dad was born in 1937. I think he started to walk with his father with horses after tractors started to arrive in the fields, and after products arrived in the field. And... Um, it's hard to make any judgment because when all the product arrived in the vineyards, it changed the way of living of winemakers. It was for them a real advance in the way of living, you know, your family life, things like that. But when we arrived, we told to our father, we would like to plot again the vines because you always try to make great wine in relationship with your soil and i think if we want to keep a better relationship we have to be more close for that we have to go back on the past because i think it's very important part of the great wines we prefer plat again because you know it's better for making a great wines but it's also better for environment and it's also better for you when you are winemakers even if it's hard my father had Parkinson, my grandfather had Parkinson, you know. Maybe I had some question to, you know, about these things. You didn't want to be around chemicals. Yeah, exactly. And uh, even if it's hard to show that it's directly in relationship 
for me, you know, there is some consequences in relationship with that. There are a lot of questions. But the first things we decide, my sister and me, to, to go back to the whole way of walking, I think it's to make better wine, simply. To find again the kind of relationship with your soil, not ignore your soil, walking with him. And uh, sometimes it's hard, but the first plotting of spring, it's something amazing, you know, the smell, all the birds behind your tractor, it's one of the best parts of the job of winemakers, you know, wine growers. And going back to that, it's also going back in the past. It's going back to your own story, to your what you are. And uh, it's having and making more pleasure uh, of making wine. And, uh, you know, taking time for that, it's something important. That's one of the first and the most important things. But we decided to do that. At first, for the quality. We had, uh, with my father and Joe Dresner, for example, interesting talk about that, because Joe would like to work with people in this way of wines, but not only Joe, I'm thinking about great winemakers in Beaujolais, around us, who started to go back in all this uh, way of making wine long time ago. I'm thinking about Marcel Lapierre, he's one of the most famous, but he's not the only one. I'm thinking about some, for example, Eric Janin in Moulin-Avant, he's a great winemaker, or... Jean-Gilles Chasselet, for example, are some good, good winemakers who a long time ago started to say, what happened? We lost something. We have to go back. We have to, to finding again what we are, you know? And the first thing is to work with your soil, not to work without your soil. For me, it's interesting vineyards because we need some big crisis. And when you know crisis, you know, you have a lot of questions. You have to make changements. And... I think people did that since a long time in these vineyards. Now people start to know that, but it's only the beginning. But it's an um, interesting vineyard for that because it's only one of the only vineyards when you can also find uh, people with very simple relationship with the vines. It's not like some vineyards in France, very famous, or sometimes it changes a little bit. So you're saying... There's not a lot of corporate ownership and you're meeting people who really have a more peasant idea. Yeah. That's hard to find actually in modern life. Yeah. And even I'm winemaker and it's hard to keep this relationship because when you are a winemaker, you are also a boss and uh, you have to make money for a living. And um, bank and nature are definitely two different things. <laughs> and uh, they, they are not the same, you know... And more and more the difference between what nature asks and what we have to do for a living, the difference is big, bigger and bigger for me. Some winemakers did very hard choice. When you start to work in organic way, sometimes in biodynamic, you, you make a lot of risk, you know, and sometimes you lose. And uh, when you don't make wines, it means like uh, it's hard for making money, hard for living of your work. And we have a good example of people who did this kind of choice in very odd situation. And I think they are very courageous people. So you started plowing again. Yeah. And you encountered that you had some issues with cutting up roots. Yeah. But uh, after a few years, vines also have a just great capacity of adaptation. 
And uh, normally you'll also start to have uh, interesting results by this way of working. I'm thinking about uh, the sunny vintage we have more and more, hot vintage. Some people sometimes ask me, do you replot your vines? What do you think about the results of this? I used to say that for me, it, you don't make more concentration or more what you want. I don't know. It's hard to, to really see some differences, but I noticed that in the hot vintages, we always have a pH and acidity better than people who doesn't plant. Well, it goes back to what you said, which is that the changes you're making are to make better wine first, and then secondarily, what's how you're interested in working. So it's not that you're placing the idea of how you're interested in working above the idea of better wine. You're making changes to organics and plowing because you think it's better wine, and then it's also you enjoy to work that way. But yeah. it's not because of some theoretical idea that you think you should do this. It's not related to wine quality. No, yeah. Also, working with products, it's dangerous. It's definitely very dangerous for us. For people who like wine and drink wine, yes. But the first are us. It's important to know that. Possibly that's one reason why we've seen more people in the Beaujolais region go to organic, because you are seeing family-owned domains where the family owns the domain and works the domain. Yeah. And they're making decisions about how they want to work that involve their own health. Whereas I think when you have bigger estates and corporate ownership, they're more apt to pay people to work in a certain fashion that maybe they themselves would not so much like to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Beaujolais is still, I think, a vineyard where it's hard to find winemakers who pay some people for working for them. You're right, it makes some differences. But now, also, I think it starts to change a little bit. There is definitely a new generation of winemakers, and this new generation of winemakers of different kind of age really want to go back on the past in a way, but with the knowledge of our time. And some of them understood that it's a vineyard for the future. And uh, a big part of them work in organics. And uh, it's amazing to say that. Because when uh, I arrived at the beginning of the 2000th uh, year, it was very different. And something happened. And there are also people of other vineyards, or Burgundy, for example, who start to arrive in the vineyard. But it's nice. It means like some people are interested by this area. At least in this country, it seems like there is economic incentive for those wines. Since the 05 vintage was released, and I'd say 09 as well, and subsequently, the wines have sold well and for higher prices each year. So I imagine that that translates into Beaujolais as to more freedom to do what you're interested in because you're going to find a market. Mm -hmm. You talk about two examples, interesting, 2005 and 2009 which are two very impressive vintage, like very warmy. And uh, I'm thinking about 2009, people were very exciting by the wine of Beaujolais, but it wasn't wine of Beaujolais for me. You know, it was like bodybuilding wine. It's because we had this kind of vintages, some people go back to the Beaujolais. And now people look for drinkable wines a little bit more in the opposite of 2009. We had, for example, 2015, 
which is definitely very impressive and sunny and hot vintages with some tannins. And people prefer 2016, which is a very classical vintage, more tight, more mineral with a lot of drinkable touch. You know, what's the gamma haze, in fact? But it's interesting to see that, of course, prices change, but I think it's a good thing. Uh, because what I told, like 10,000 vines and hectares, it's expensive, it costs. And uh, if you believe in your work, you have to sell the good prices. We are far from very expensive, but we can find, I think, the good balance. And uh, one of the most t terrible things, I think, in Beaujolais, it's the crew of Beaujolais. Morgon, Moulinvon, Julien Hachena, forgot that they were a crew during a lot of years. Because if uh, Moulin Avant or Morgon is less than 10 euros in France, you know, for customers, it means like a Beaujolais village, it's less than 6 euros. And it means that a simple Beaujolais, it's less than what? Who can live with this kind of prices? You know, uh, our grand-grandfather invented crew of Beaujolais and they did great things. We had a great soil. And then if you walk really well, your vines, you can make a great wine. And I think we have to accept and to, you know, to accept that and to understand that crew of Beaujolais have to be more expensive. Because if you sell a crew of Beaujolais at 15 or 20 euros a bottle in France, it means like a Beaujolais village could be 10 euros or 12 euros a bottle. And it means like a Beaujolais, the winemaker who only walked the Beaujolais, the simple Beaujolais, can sell this bottle 7 euros. I think it's more fair, I think. And at the same time, we've seen Beaujolais producers move into something that had already happened in Chateauneuf-de-Pop or the idea of the super wine, like a 3.14 or a Cuvée Marcel, which is at a higher price point. Beaujolais needed before, because I think now it really changed, uh, needed great bottlings, you know, with the good prices in relationship for that. And I had an interesting talk also with a great man uh, in England, Jasper Maurice, who told me a long time ago, when we, we made Les Impénitents. Which is a bottling that you make at your wedding. Yeah, exactly. Our best bottling, actually, in the family. It's expensive. But we really would like to create a bottling, you know. At the beginning, we put it a big price eh, for Beaujolais. And when we, we did that, Jasper told me, I wait that for 30 years. Because in Beaujolais, when you make great bottling, you put one euro more. People, 10 years ago, they said, it's good wine, you know, with one euro more. But if you put your bottle 20 euros more, people will start to say it's a great wine. Right. And that's the difference. And sometimes we forgot that in the past. Now it starts to change. It's, it's important. And I'm glad to see that it's possible in Beaujolais to find models for $100, I think, if you go in a good restaurant, and to find a bottle to $20 or $15. You know, it's possible to find... What do you want? And at least in the States, what I've seen is a different generation of sommeliers who are more open. So I think classically people thought, well, Beaujolais and Loire wines, they're happy wines. They're supposed to be cheap wines, not too complex. And I'm not supposed to charge a ton of money for them. And so then there was resistance in the market to paying more for those categories. But now we've seen a real change in who buys wine in the United States, frankly, in terms of the sommiers. And they're much more open to the idea that a Beaujolais can be. It's very important. 
And it's definitely very true. We have exactly the same thing in France, like in the States now. We have a lot of young sommeliers in France who are definitely more open. You know, they look for different things and they are open of different kind of wine. And you talk about Beaujolais, Loire Valley, or for example, wine of Jura or Savoie, while vineyards a little bit smaller maybe, but with famous wines, definitely. And of course, sommeliers have a big part in the results of what's happened, a big part. In the USA, of course, uh, importer like Joe, Denise, or Jules, they did amazing work for that because they work with those vineyards since 30 years. Right. You know, it's crazy. They believed in Muscadet and Beaujolais 30 years ago. And it's great because actually you understood that you can have amazing things in every vineyard, you know, not only in the officially best vineyards. It means also it's possible to find great wines for $25. I think it was really important that Joe and Denise had a house on the Macon and were so close to what was going on in Beaujolais and some of their early finds like Brune. It seems like it was uh, important for them too in their own development in terms of wine importers because if you look at the history of the book, it changed a lot in terms of the principles of selection. And at the same time, they were physically there as American importers. Most people aren't. Most people don't live in France for a part of the year. Definitely. The first years I came in the USA, for example, for tastings, I was just, you know, when you, you made the tastings in Paris, people were awful with Beaujolais. Right. It was very, very hard. When you arrived in New York, I saw like 200 people for making tastings of Muscadet and Beaujolais, you know. I thought, what happened? You know, How is possible, you know? But it happens because people... They went in France and they met winemakers. And Jean-Paul Brun is also a good example. And Jean-Paul Brun did also great work for other winemakers. For example, me, my dad, ni Joe and Denise, because Jean-Paul Brun made the bridge between us, you know? It's always like that. It's a small story, but it's human story. And we've talked about the transitions and how you're working, but your dad made good wine. I had a 99 from him about five years ago. and. Um, that was good wine. And in keeping with the wines of today, stylistically, it was the fruit was somewhat similar. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the first, for example, to make some uh, bottling with Javernier, a name of a lieu It was very rare in the Beaujolais in the 70s or in the 80s. Definitely. Some people work with Côte du Pie, but not a lot. But Javernier, nobody's worked like that. And he made very tannic wines in the 80s and the 70s with a lot of personalities. My dad gave us the philosophy of making the Morgon for aging, the Morgon with a lot of you know, tannins sometimes. My dad did some austere wines, but with a lot of personality. Did you ever talk to him about why he decided to label Javanier on the bottle? My father, since the beginning of his career, had a lot of curiosity for great wine of everywhere. You know, when I was a child, I drank wine of everywhere in the world. My dad really liked wine, you know. He liked drinking wine and he liked looking for great wine. You know, you, you can feel when you have a great soil, a great terroir, you know, you can feel that. And he felt that since the beginning. And I understand when you have grapes from Javernier who arrived in your tank, it's different. Since the beginning, you know, the beginning of the fermentation is different than the others. 
do you guys do remontage or pigeage? Do you do? No, we don't make any pigeage, but we like working with remontage at the beginning of the fermentation for giving some oxygen for the yeast and for making good mixing at the beginning. I think for us, it's very important. The first days we do that, but after uh, when we start to arrive in density low, little bit between 1020, 1030, we stop any remontage. And um, we wait. And when we arrived in a very, very low density, I'm thinking about 999 or something like that, we sometimes like to make a delestage. So you take the juice out and it warms up a little bit and then you put it back in. Yeah. So it's rack and return. Exactly. While it's fermenting. Exactly. For several reasons. The first one, it's interesting for maintaining fermentation because the juice take a lot of yeast and sugar who stay in the, in the skin, you know. And it gives some oxygen, and it's interesting for maintaining fermentation. It's also interesting because you can have more juice of the vinification and less juice of the press, which is sometimes just juice with more root tannins. And it's interesting sometimes for having good concentration with more elegant tannins. So what's your approach to press wine? What do you do with it? When we press, we put the juice of the fermentation with the juice of press. We mix everything together. Immediately? Yeah, yeah, exactly immediately. When we press, we put everything together, yes. So, maybe eight years ago? I remember there was Javanier as a bottling, and there was an idea that there was an upper and a lower Javanier. In fact, in Javanier, we have three hectares, but in one piece. We are lucky, but you know, it's a lot. And my dad always did two bottlings because, you know, it's expensive to make everything in one time. So he bottled in two batches. Exactly. And uh, in 2005, people talked about that because we put the top of Javanier before the lower part and it makes some differences. People uh, preferred the first. <laughs> you know, a lot of people talked about that, but after we changed, because actually we only have one bottling Javernier, it's the same bottling, and we have Les Impenitents. It's a selection of all the old vines of Javernier. Vines were planted in 1912 and 1914. So I assume that the Les Impenitents was one of those two, that it was the upper or the lower. But what you're saying is it's both upper and lower, but it's older. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what we did, and it makes difference. So what is that difference in terms of the fermentation? What's the difference? Most part of the time, we have some young vines in Javernier, and uh, we used to work in full bench. But when you have a lot of young vines, you know, sometimes the linification are green, like big. And we distend a little bit for Javernier because it's younger. And uh, after, it depends on the vintage also. For Les Impenitents, the first difference is it's everything is in full bench. That's the first difference. After, that's only the difference of ages of the vines who makes less grapes, but with fantastic quality. And uh, the fermentation is the same between Javernier, between Les Impenitents, but also between the Côte du Pays, La Voûte Saint-Vincent. We try to do exactly the same for every bottling. The most interesting things for us is to make the differences between each soil. If you work everything in the same way, that's the best way of showing that. It's... Unlined cement, right? Yeah. For both fermentation and maturation. Sure. We like working like that because um, it's exactly what we love with Gamay. For us, Gamay, 
with the soil of, for example, Morgon, the Côte du Pige, Avernier, and what we have in the family, need about nothing for, uh, you know, having enough personality. I think it's better for making differences between each wines, I think. It's pure without any artifice, any makeup or something like that. It's really what we like. Because like that, we can keep some minimal, tight and uh, freshness things, even in the, the vintage, very hot. Even in 2015, for example. And for us, that's one of the best quality of the gamay. Some good winemakers used to work with barrels and they make amazing ones. Thinking about La Cuvée Zachary Chateau Tivin, for example, it's amazing wines. It's a good example of great gamay aging in the barrels and it's amazing. But we do differently in, in the family and we really love that. Like the pure tight feeling about the gamay only with concrete, with nothing more, I think, you know. But sometimes it could be a problem for reduction, for example. Because, you know, it's not like barrels, you know, they are not the, the same exchange with the oxygen with outside. And sometimes it could give more reduction style in the wine, especially a few months after the bottling. We always have a kind of comeback with some reduction. But wine with this kind of reduction, it's also kind of good sign. It means like it's wine for aging. It's wine who have some good personality. And reduction, it could be a problem, but most part of the time, it's better to have some reduction than oxidation, you know? But working only with concrete, the bad things of that, I think it's the reduction. But for us, that's the best way of showing our soil with the gamay. So does gamay as a grape tend towards reduction? I think naturally, gamay, it's definitely a reductive grape variety. After... In Beaujolais, and it, for me it's true, I had an interesting talk with um, a man who work uh, in the labelization of organic because we speak about sulfites. You have some limits, officially, when you are labelization. And uh, he told me it's crazy because in Beaujolais, you have a, everywhere I come, the quantity of sulfites is very low. That's the lower quantity we can find most part of the time. And for you, these things for labelization, it's almost every time not a problem, you know? And it's true because uh, Gamay, people used to work with um, a lot of carbonic gas. And when you have some carbonic gas in Beaujolais, it's nice because you can keep wine with not a lot of sulfites. It's good, uh, natural way of keeping your wine safe about a lot of things, of oxidation, for example. The relationship between both can also bring some reduction also. For example, us, we don't uh, make any movement with the wine between uh, the end of the press until the bottling. Because for us, it's important we can keep some freshness. And every time when you touch your wine, you lose something. You lose something. For us, for Gamay, only for that. But when you, you walk like that, you walk with the Lee, and uh, it's natural, reductive things. So I understand perfectly what you mean by if you put the wine in wood, there's micro-oxidation through the staves, and that takes away the reduction. Mm -hmm. For example, Gigal in the Northern Rhone, one of the reasons they leave their Syrah so long in wood, like sometimes four years, 
or the Lala's is because they don't want to bottle a reductive wine and the process will work itself out through oxygen at the same time that they can leave it on the lees. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I've noticed is that reduction, and it does really seem like there's different kinds of reduction and it's more of a family than a specific thing, but reduction can showcase wood. So if you have reduction in a wine and you've used wood, it can seem like a lot of wood in the taste of the wine. And so sometimes when I see producers that are either working with reductive grape varieties like Dolcetto or Montepulciano di Abruzzo or Syrah or reductive soils, sometimes I've had people come here and tell me that clay soils tend towards more reduction. It's probably a certain kinds of clay. I often find people not working with wood in those situations. And I think it just historically tastes better. So an example of that would be like Pepe in Abruzzo has Montepulciano in clay and they don't use any wood. It's all cement like you. And in the Northern Rhone, you see a lot of people using cement fermenters. And in Pomerol, you see almost exclusively cement fermenters in a clay region. And for me, these things are somewhat related because... If you do the Gigal thing, if you do micro-oxidization through the staves to get the reduction out, but you want to leave it on the leaves without racking it a lot, that's like a four-year process for Syrah from those vineyards, right? Whereas if you put a reductive wine in contact with wood for like six months, the taste can be like it's two years in wood. Yeah. And so I think it makes sense if you're telling me that you're getting sometimes more reductive wines in Couve, um, that someone in your family before you got there decided not to use wood because it probably didn't taste good together. Yeah, 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 sure. Just a theory. No, it's interesting theory, of course. The quantity of gears you choose for when you work with wood is important. It makes differences. But I think you're also right when you speak about clay. And if you tell me that some winemakers who used to work with reductive grape variety and, for example, clay soil, work without barrels, without woods, and gives better results. I think it's interesting theory. But it reminds me some comments of some journalists in France who talked about wine of the winery. And they, they wrote, the élevage in barrels was just perfect. Several times. Your wines. Yeah. And uh, I wrote, you know, in return, but we don't use any, by any barrels, you know. And uh, that's fun because uh, most part of the time it's great tasters. They're used to drink a lot of different kinds of wine. It's not the problem. But sometimes you can have some flavor very close to barrels, even if you don't use any barrels, with kind of reduction, for example. That's what I think, too. Yeah. And I think when you have those two things together, they, they amplify in this way that seems very apparent. And then yeah. people say, oh, it's really woody. I think when people are talking about some kinds of Montepulciano di Abruzzo being woody, I think that's why, for example, is that they're using Bordeaux technique on a different grape and a different soil, and it's not working for them. But I'll be honest, I didn't know that you guys didn't use wood until you told me. Mm-hmm. So like, I've been drinking your wines for like 15 years, mm-hmm. and it never even occurred to me. And You'd think I would notice because I drink a lot of Pepe and I've drunk Plageol and neither of those producers use any wood. So you'd think I would have said like, oh, okay, this is more like that. But I never noticed. And I think another thing that's happening is that you guys don't rack much, right? You don't typically move the wine from one vessel to another. Yeah, exactly. 
And one of the things I've noticed about that, which is becoming increasingly a global trend, is to not rack much. Both in Bordeaux, like at Petrus, they're racking almost never. And then in Burgundy, you see people racking much less. Instead of four or five rackings, they're doing one or two. Mm -hmm. And when you have that kind of situation, it changes the fruit. Like the fruit seems more primary and it seems deeper. And I think that that also complements your wines. Like that's the style you're going for anyway. But I think it's a factor of if you racked more, I think you'd have less of that. Yeah. After the, the end of the alcoholic fermentation, the end of the malolactic fermentation, moving wines, for us, it's, it's a mistake. But only for our vineyards, you know what? Some people have some parcel and want to do that. And so I think it's a good choice. But uh, for us, definitely, when we did that, we had some bad surprises every time. And one of the most important things in the gamay is that the pure feeling of fruit, deep feeling of natural fruit, simple, tight, minimal touch in the mouth, you know, that's one of the best quality of the gamay. And I think... Moving wines between the bottling, it's something dangerous for that every time. It depends on what you look for. And it's also interesting to speak about that for a wine who you can age, you know, because it has some consequences for wines 10 years after also. I think it's better for making also wines for aging, to not move a lot the wines. Every time it's something brutal for the for wine. And... Uh, the bottling is also a very interesting question. If you decide to use Kieselger or not, nothing to the day also, the day of the bottlings. So what's your experience on the bottling side? Because it's not something I have a lot of direct experience with. Uh, the filtration, it's interesting question. Remind me a moment, not a long time ago, uh, Jean-Louis Dutreff told me that you will win something if you stop filtration because he was really, really convinced about that. Your customer have to accept that sometimes you have some bad surprises in the bottle. But more and more, I agree with him. I think uh, if you can find a good day, the good moments, if it's possible to work without filtration, you keep something more close of what you're, you had at the beginning with the just, And it's something interesting. But sometimes, you know, it depends of, also of the vintage. It's not the same to make wine without filtration in 2016 or in 2015 or 17, which is wine with a lot of color, a lot of polyphenol. It means, like, you know, depends also about your winter, if you have a cold winter or not. If you have a cold winter, a lot of... Um, Settling. Yeah. It makes differences. After the choose of the day with the, the moon. The barometric pressure from the moon. Definitely. For me, I'm convinced about that. And uh, it makes differences. Just to get back to that filtering question again, I remember one of the key realizations I had about Joe Dresner was that he was interested in finding that taste that he found in the vat, in the winery, in the bottle. His idea was that something was happening to wines in between tasting them in vat and then tasting them in bottle that the bottled wines were less interesting. And, you know, he had that realization because he was regularly visiting wineries, which is something most consumers don't do. But it seems to me that you're sort of working towards some of the same question in terms of how can I get some of this fruit that I like to be present in the bottle 
because you want it to be both approachable and ageable. And mm-hmm. listening to you in this conversation, you've equated both of those with the fruit intensity. Yeah. Right? After, it's also the balance with acidity. The pH is something important. Choosing the good date of harvest, that's the first important things for that. So what's important to you? And do you pick at the same time as your father? or No, definitely not. For sunny and hot vintages, more and more we start before the others. Because at first, sometimes when you plot, you don't have a lot of grapes quantity. It means like it, it going faster, you know, the maturity arrived faster than others. That's the first things. After keeping good acidity and pH is something important, but every parcel are different. Some parcel need to be at 14 degree alcohol for having a good phenolic maturity. Some of them, it's 12, you know, and you have to know every parcel for that. So do you see a difference there on sand versus clay? Because you work with both. Sure, sure. If you work with clay, it's not the same of working with sand, you know. For example, when they used to work with horses, it's not the same to work in sand, to work in clay. You know, it's harder with clay. That's why uh, whole people used to keep very high density with one meters between each lines for the horse to walk with clay, especially when it's after big sun, you know, when it's very hard, but even if it's after rains. If it's sand, it's easier. And we can find vines planted in one meters, 30 centimeters between each lines because it was easier for the horses. You know, every, every vines have something to tell. What you're saying is that the vine rows were longer in sand, but they were shorter in clay so that the horse didn't have to walk as far. Yeah. Exactly. I have cold parcel in the north part of the Appalachian, La Voute Saint-Vincent. Most part of the time, even in the sunny and the hot vintages, the good maturity is when they are with 12.5, 12 alcohol, not more. But for the Côte du Pie, it's different. Most part of the time, I'm starting with the Côte du Pie because the maturity is like more important. And uh, the good maturity... With the polyphenol, the phenolic maturity, it's 13 and a half, sometimes 14, you know. Every parcel are different. My father always starts very later, but he was really in relationship with the climate. Uh, it's totally different now. But I know that. In the family, what we used to say, what we used to see, it's vintage like 2013, which is a vintage cold. Because we start harvest in October, you know, it doesn't happen in Beaujolais since 1987. We used to start later than a lot of winemakers. But sunny vintage, we used to start before the others. But every vintage is different. It's a yo-yo. For example, in 2014, 2013, it was between 20th September, 1st October, 2015, it was 28 August, it was the 20th September in 2016. In 2017, it was the 1st September. You know, it's like... But since 20 years, the average is definitely before. You know, I was born in 1980. I was born in the middle of October, and it was the middle of the harvest of my dad. 
That was convenient for him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm a... But my dad uh, kept some bottles of 80s because he's, for him, one of the worst vintage. He just kept some bottles for showing me that uh, how it's bad. I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with people on this show. It's so common that a good winemaker tells me that they were born in a bad vintage and that their <laughs> their parents, that, you know. Yeah. Oh, I kept some bottles for showing to you how it's bad. It's almost like a rule, almost. Yeah, but I'm I'm working with my sister, and my sister was born in 1976, which is one of the best vintages in Beaujolais. And um, since I'm a child, I always have my sister who told me, oh, oh, we opened a bottle of 76. Would you like to look for a bottle of 80s? Yeah, sure. It was your sister that really decided to stay with the family domain first and then yeah. you decided later and so what's your relationship been with her i mean in a way you must have found some inspiration in what she was doing since we are a child we we had a very good relationship together we stay very close also because we lived some uh, odd moments together and um, when she came back in the winery it was in 2001 and she officially started in 2002 she really needed about some help, you know, and uh, I think I started to come back in the vineyards with that and to stay close also to my father because, yeah, we lived some moments a bit hard together. But I think it's a good reason for coming back. And uh, finally, I start to be very passionate. I mean, it's clear in this conversation that you're yeah. very passionate. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sure. I know it's not video, and so people can't see how much your arms are moving, but it's a lot. <laughs> it was really a passion, but I came back really for, for being close to them. You know, it's, it was just um, natural. But I came back for that, yes, because when I was a child, it was a little bit big for me, and... Uh, Arriving after my dad, make wine after my granddad. Since eight generation, I'm Louis Benoit. My dad was Louis Claude. It, it was than the French king, you know. Like sometimes, please, uh, just would like uh, not Louis, but just Benoit, and let, leave me alone. I need to to did my own things alone. It's also not easy to walk after your dad when he creates something, you know, because. It's important to create your own thing. I think I think it's very important for all the son and all the daughter in the world. It's important things to do. And people do that differently. You have a lot of way of doing that. Sometimes people have no problems to arrive after the dad or the mother. And it's nice, you know. But me, I needed to did other things before. I did. And I came back because I really would like to do. So how do you divide it up now? Does your sister mostly focus on the winery and you focus on the vines, or how do you do it? The most important things together, we love the vinification together. We are really close for that, and it's our favorite part, definitely. I think um, I'm a little bit more present in the vines, but every decision are very collegial. We do a lot of things together. After, uh, I'm still a young winemaker, and uh, every year I have new deal, you know. Uh, learning to be winemaker, it's learning a lot of things, and you need a life for that. So when you look back, do you have certain vintages that you associate with certain realizations? I started uh, with 2004, which is certainly the baddest vintage I made. 
my sister with 2002. Uh, interesting because we learned a lot. We have a lot of rain during August and uh, it was just uh, horrible. But after we need, for example, 2005, every grapes were a model. You see the grapes, it's like you are in the paradise, the grape of the gods, you know, everything was simple. pH, acidity, it became swines easily, you know. But finally, uh, I also need vintage other, but after, I'm thinking about 2013, for example, which uh, was a vintage without spring. Like, the winter uh, was until July. <laughs> it means, like, it's a fucking bad vintage. And uh, we have good uh, July and August was okay. But for me, it costs a lot of, of works, a lot of worries, a lot of bad, bad weeks, you know, a lot of stress. The results now, all, all these difficulties and the result now, it's my favorite things. It's my favorite vintage for that because the wine actually is, is very austere, but it's something very pure. It's deep. It's rich wine. And the way of having these wines was so hard. And I love this relationship between both. 2012 also was very odd vintage. And some choice was very difficult. We had hail, we had a lot of mildew, we had a, but I love the results. You know, it's not great vintages. Not quite for aging 20 years, it's not impressive wine, but it's very um, joyful wine with a lot of fruits. And the pleasure I have to drink these wines, actually, I love that because it's in relationship with very hot vintages. 2014 was a great vintage for me because it's also one of the most classical vintage for speaking about what's the gamay in the Beaujolais. It's that. If you want to make a good definition about that, 2014 and 2016 are beautiful vintage. Gamay in Beaujolais, it's, it's that, you know, it's exactly what it is. 15, it's amazing wines, it's incredible but it's wines for people who don't know Beaujolais. When you know Beaujolais, you prefer 16 or 14. So you skipped one of my favorites, which was 2007. It had a real pleasing aspect to it, but some complexity at the same time. And the wines didn't receive a lot of acclaim here, and they were often closed out for cheap prices, and I'm a cheap person. So <laughs> yeah. 2007 was uh, odd vintage also. We had some rain uh, in August, and uh, we have to make a very odd tree. You have to be careful with the sorting. Exactly. But the result is not so far from what we had in 2014. Very classical, very beautiful pH and acidity. It means wine's drinkable. Not impressive, but very drinkable, pure. And it aged well, very well. You know, it don't move a lot, you know. 2006 was also, for me, a special vintage because it was after 2005. Five, everybody would like to buy five. It was the vintage. But still now, for me, it's very austere wine. It's like clothes. It's like Hulk, but in the jail. You know, it's, no, I don't want to talk with you. I don't like you. And I don't want to show what I have. 2006, nobody would like 2006 after five because it wasn't impressive as 2005. 
But since the beginning, it's very generous wine. Not impressive with a lot of tannins, but very fine and elegant. Pure, fine, elegant, and round. Like an infusion, something very light. And still now, they are just amazing. With exactly the same pure filling they had in 10 years ago. Exactly the same. And 2005 are still austere. And I definitely love these vintages because it wasn't fun like five, but it was better. And for me, it's still better. You really started there in 2004. It's, it's been 14 years. If I were to move ahead, say, 14, 15 years, what is it that you would have liked to have achieved? The selection muscle. It's, for me, the most important matter for the quality of the wine of the future. If you want to ask me what will be the important matters for the future, for the next generation, it's that matters. Refining good materials or making vines we can plant for several generations without bad diseases like Esca or Didarm, who actually destroy the big part of the vineyards in France everywhere. It's true in Bajola, but it's true everywhere. And it's very interesting matters also for the quality because what you choose for making it have a big consequences of the quality of the wines. When it comes to your own wines, how do you handle them? For instance, do you decant some of your wines or do you serve them straight from bottle or do you wait a certain amount of years before you open certain bottles? Or I used to say for wine in, in the family, the first years, especially odd vintages, I'm thinking about 2015, for example, it's better to decant because they are young, they are like with a lot of tannins, they are very wild, something wild. And sometimes a small decantation two, three years before, sometimes one day, could be amazing. But after five years, for Gamay, for wine of the family, not sure it's good. It's only true for the first years. Louis Benoit de Vigne believes that you have to learn from life to learn to make wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I was very proud to speak with you. Louis Benoit de Vigne of de Vigne in Beaujolais in France. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. When you make bread, you make 10,000 bread, you know, a year. When you are a winemaker, 
if you live a long time, you make 40 times wines, you know? <laughs> it's nothing, you know? After the end of your career, you know nothing. And my dad told me that. My granddaddy told me that, and it's true. Because 40 times making wine, it's, you really are, you are young students until the end. And uh, it's hard for that, but it's also the best part because every time it's different. And every time you have to have a lot of adaptation. And when I was young, I heard what time intelligence, it's knowing adaptation. You understand what I mean? 